This is David's Book Talk, bringing authors and book lovers together in a unique way since 2009. Visit us at davidsbooktalk.com and join the conversation at facebook.com slash davidsbooktalk. But first, pull up a chair, relax, and enjoy today's episode. Here's your host, David English. Hello and welcome to David's Book Talk. And today we have a new author. She's never been published before. And her book is very dark and, and the cover is wonderful. It's called Murder by Degrees. And the author's name is Ritu Mukherjee. Hello. Hello, David. Thank you so, so much for having me. I'm, I'm delighted to be here and to talk about the book. Well, great. That was my biggest fear that I would say your name wrong. <laughs> You know, you look yeah. at a name, and some, sometimes it, you look at it a second time, and you're like, oh, I didn't see that letter before. And you, well, I can tell you pronounced it perfectly, so well, thank you. Well, I had them send me an email so I would know exactly how it's said, so I wouldn't make an idiot out of myself, you know. We, you don't I, want to do, I appreciate that. You don't want to do that during an interview. Where did you get this cover? Is this, is this like an original cover? I mean, it's it's so creepy. Yes, um, you know, there was a lot of thought, uh, you know, in the cover design, and this was done by the art director and the art department um, at Simon & Schuster, and I agree with you. I think it's, um, it's just a gorgeous cover, you know, artistically, and um, what I was struck by as the writer is just how much, you know, this cover really conveys the atmospheric setting of the book, um, and so... It, you know, I, I think it just absolutely captures the essence of the book in just, a, you know, a cover portrait. And so it is, yes, it's an original. Uh, that that streetlight is what is one of the, the, the creepiest thing in the book because it, it just reaches out like it, you feel like it's part of the... And, and it, it's interesting when you look at a cover, what, what goes through your mind. Like, well, I wonder what this book is about. So when you, you, people pick this up, you want them to read it. So that, that's the idea, to get them interested in the story. Exactly, to be intrigued, and obviously it's a mystery, so something, you know, you know, very compelling, and, and you know, where is she walking down this um, kind of rain-slicked street? Uh, so all of those questions, I hope, are in the mind of the reader. Right, and they never show the face on the cover either. You don't want to show a face, because that, that means the mis part of the mystery is revealed, you know? <laughs> I guess. Exactly. <laughs> I, I guess that's a theory. Now, this book's going to be out on October 17th. Is that the right date? That's right. October 17th is the publication date. So it's near Halloween. Did, did they do that on purpose? Well, you know, this, uh, this, there, there is actually the, the plot of the book takes place um, around Halloween time. So um, in the book, as you know, Dr. Lydia Weston, she's a professor and anatomist at Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania, and the book is set in Philadelphia, 1875. Um, and the story opens at the start of the autumn or fall term. And so it really is around this time that, um, you know, the events of the novel are taking place. And, you know, one of the great scenes in the book, one of my favorites to write was a Halloween party. And so a lot of the action takes place around this time period. So it, it actually works perfectly that it's being published in October. How because cool I think it definitely fits the mood of this time. Oh, yeah. yeah. How cool is that? <laughs> just, yeah. To just fit right in. Now, I guess the, the, the question that's going to be in everybody's mind is, this, is this going to be a series? So that's, that's, that's one of my raging questions in my head. Is this going to be a series? Yes. So I'm actually currently working on book two um, of the series, and um, I definitely, before I even started, I really envisioned this as a series. So, you know, for as long as I can remember, I have been an avid reader of mystery and crime fiction, um, and, you know, my favorite uh, novels and series really are centered around, you know, just this independent, strong, 
unconventional woman as the investigator. Um, so characters, you know, as diverse as like Kara Black's Amy LaDuke or um, Sue Grafton's Kinsey Milholm. Mm. Uh, you know, I just love these series. And, you know, the beauty of a series to me is there's so much you can do with the evolution of a character. And in those series that I mentioned, or like Jacqueline Winspear's Maisie Dobbs, you know, over time and as, you know, time progresses and historical events change and the character evolves, you know, in their relationships and how they view the world, I think it's just a fascinating, um, you know, way to, to develop a character. And so I definitely envisioned it as a series and I'm very happy to be working on the second book now. Um, to, to sort of further, you know, with the same group of characters and obviously with Dr. Lydia Weston as the investigator. Right. To come now, back again. you have a medical degree? I do. So I um, am a internist. Uh, so I actually, a big inspiration for this book is that I was a medical student in Philadelphia. Um, I lived there for about five years, and I was a student at Jefferson Medical College. It's since been renamed to Sydney Kimmel Medical College. Right. Um, but it is that uh, I was a student there, and so I lived there for about uh, five years uh, while I got my medical degree. Um, and then I, you know, came back to California. I'm originally from the San Francisco Bay Area, did residency training at the University of California at Davis, and then have practiced as an internist for the past 15 years. Um, but a huge influence for this book was my time in Philly as a medical student. Um, you know, when I lived there, it was, I, so my first apartment was at 9th and Pine Street, and mm. I would spend so much time exploring that neighborhood, um, and that neighborhood as for those who are familiar with Philadelphia, as you know, the old city, Society Hill, it's just incredibly atmospheric. And, you know, of course I had known Philadelphia, this historic American city, the Liberty Bell, you know, Independence Square. But what I discovered when I was living there is just how much of the history of American medicine is there. Um, you know, you cannot walk more than, I feel like, a block in that neighborhood without encountering one of those wonderful, you know, blue plaques that are, you know, a historic marker of something, right. you know, interesting or um, a person who had lived there. And so one of the first places I went to see was Pennsylvania Hospital, um, which uh, was a block from where I lived. And, I mean, it's like the oldest public hospital in the United States. There's a cornerstone, foundation stone, with an inscription from Benjamin Franklin. Mm. And, you know, you can go see the old surgical amphitheater there, which is a fascinating place. It's, uh, there's a huge window in the ceiling because the surgeons at that time had to operate between the hours of 11 and 2 to capture the natural light. And there's a, kind of a pit in the center and then, you know, these stalls, wooden stalls that go up you know, around uh, the circular kind of room so that, you know, students and observers could watch surgeries taking place. And so, you know, I would find these places, you know, or like the Mutter Museum or the reading room at the College of Physicians. And, you know, I was just so um, intrigued by this history of medicine that was there. And, you know, one of the things that I love about Philly is just how the layers of history are embedded into modern life. It's like, you know, on the one hand, you have this old hospital that's currently a modern hospital, part of Penn's um, hospital system, and you hear the traffic, you know, like driving down Pine Street, and yet at times you're walking around the ground and you just feel really transported to a different time. So that was really a big influence, and it was only until years later, um, you know, I had left Philadelphia, and I was really thinking seriously about writing a mystery novel myself, because I had loved crime fiction for so long. And I learned of the Women's Medical College. And when I did, I was just inspired. And as I delved into research about the real-life stories of these women doctors, I just knew I had the perfect setting and just the perfect place to put my investigator. Exactly. Interesting. How hard, I mean, when you started to write this book, was it as hard as you thought it would be? Or is it? does it come easy for you? You know, it's interesting. I would say doing the research was a very natural extension of things that I already loved to do. So the research was really fun. You know, I it, it, it was just an opportunity, you know, spending long hours reading, really delving into a subject, immersing myself in something. That is something that I've loved to do 
for as long as I can remember. No matter how busy I've been as a medical student, as a resident, as a physician, reading is such a constant in my life. Um, I would always find the time to do it, um, just for pleasure, for learning, just to be endlessly curious about things. And so when I started doing the research, it was really reading about women's medical college, you know, thinking like a 19th century doctor. I mean, it was looking at, you know, old medical textbooks, reading medical journals from the 1870s, um, you know, looking at uh, and visiting, like, archives, the wonderful archives they have on women's medical college is currently housed at Drexel University's um, you know, they have a legacy center archive there. So that felt very natural to me and very fun. The writing was challenging. I, I don't have a background in a writing career. You know, I don't have... So it must have been scary not, at first. Yeah, so sitting down looking at a blank page was certainly, you know, a new experience. You know, I have... And the way I approach, like, you know, the process of doing this is really feeling like I have the research in hand. You know, there's always more to do, but just really feeling like I have envisioned the world that I'm going to place the characters in. And so I really spend a lot of time constructing that historical world, thinking about the characters, how they might act. So those pieces were all in place, but then actually sitting down, plotting the narrative, the story, that was hard. And there was a lot of, you know, trial and error, a lot of stops and starts. Um, this was not an easy process, and there were days when I really felt, you know, kind of frustrated and overwhelmed. Um, but, you know, the interesting thing about it was I felt like there were a lot of skills that I had learned in medicine that ended up being very helpful in writing. And so I knew how to set a deadline and meet it. I knew how to set a goal that felt very far off and challenging and to, you know, slowly work towards it and not feel like, you know, completely discouraged. Um, I knew how to do the long hours of research. Um, so these were things that really, during the process of writing, helped me keep going. And, you know, I worked as a doctor all the way through, um, you know, the writing of this book. I have three kids at home, three school-age kids at home, wow. you know, went, wrote through the pandemic. So, you know, the skills that I learned, uh, they really helped me, um, you know, just that, that sort of resilience, like resetting yourself after a challenging situation. All these things that I learned as a doctor really helped in the writing process. But it took time, and, you know, my writing time, because of the busyness of my schedule and my life and was that I would sit down in the morning before I would go to work, so very early in the morning, or, you know, the other time would be late at night. And, um, you know, the more I could sort of stay with that consistent routine, even on the tough days where nothing felt like it was working, you know, the page was blank, when I could stay in that consistent routine, that's when I felt like I could really keep the momentum going. And yeah, so it's it's, it's easy to have an idea for a book, but to actually sit right. and write that and write a whole story around it and make it, and make it plausible and make it fun and make it where people are going to read it, that's very, very difficult. That's not easy at all. It is. It is. And, um, you know, as I said, there were, there were days and many days when, you know, I would just sort of put everything away because it just felt it just such a daunting But did process. you know you could do it? I mean, deep down, did you know that you would be able to do it eventually? That it was just going to... I did. I, I really did. I felt like I just needed to keep going. And, you know, this was something challenging and new like anything else. And, you know, I would always think back to, like, my intern year as, as a medical resident. You think... You know, it's kind of that same attitude, like, I know I'm smart and capable, and I just need to keep learning on the job and just really keep going every day. And, you know, there were times when it was really fun to do it. It was a lot of pleasure. You know, when the pandemic came around, I had been working on this book for a few years, and you know, it's not an exaggeration to see to say that in many ways it was really a lifeline during the pandemic because I had created this world with these characters who had almost become like friends. You know, they've lived in my head for so long. And, um, you know, to be able to have this creative space where I could construct a story or write a paragraph or look at Victorian poetry or think about, you know, early forensic science, it was just, it was, you know, there were definitely challenging days, but there were also really fun days where it was, um, you know, you really just felt that creativity flow. 
Um, and so, you know, you learn a lot about yourself, obviously, in a process like this. Um, and I think probably the, the biggest learning factor was just the pacing and the structure of a mystery novel. As you say, it's one thing to kind of love reading mysteries. It's quite another to just really pace it out, have a, a narrative where you're revealing things just at the right time, and to make sure that you're, you know, you have all the clues there. I, I felt very strongly about this as, a, as someone who loves mystery fiction. You know, the clues have to be there for the reader, so they should be able to solve it if they if they would like to. And so, so all of those elements, um, you know, took a lot of thought, a lot of revising, a lot of planning. And the readers are very, I mean, they want it exactly the way they want it. And they'll tell you if they don't like, I mean, they will write to you and tell you if something is, is not working. If exactly. And so there's there's that fear. But you have, you have to get through that. You, like you did, you just you just persevere and you just keep writing and, and knowing you can do it. And, you know, what's the worst that can happen? You, you don't do it, but at least you've tried. But you exactly. succeeded, and you've got a, a really cool mystery novel here. Now, Lydia, Lydia is pretty well hated in this book. <laughs> she is not a liked character very much at times. You know, I think this was the this was the thing that I really loved about Lydia as a character. So before I wrote anything, I had the idea for Lydia as the main character um, because I think in detective fiction, you know that. The detective, the investigator, is just such an important character. It's what draws readers to a series. You know, that person is our interpreter, our guide, you know, to the horrific events that happen. Um, and so, you know, that character me, to me, I had to have her so well in my head before I even started. So I wrote a character study, of, you know, down to the details of, like, what would she look like? What would she dress like? You know, where, where had she grown up? All of these influences. Um, and I think what's interesting to me as the writer was how Lydia evolved as a character from what I originally intended for her a little bit. Because, you know, in this setting, you know, in the, the, I chose 1875 for a reason, um, a couple of reasons. One was that at that time, you know, the Women's Medical College was really at the height of its operations, you know, with faculty and students, um, there was a new hospital that had been built at North College and 22nd uh, Street. You know, so there was this, like, robust campus. Yet, you know, outside of that world, there was just so much stiff opposition to the idea of women doctors. It was difficult. Why, though? Why, why was it so bad like that? I mean, it was just difficult. There was a lot of distrust about whether, you know, the training that and education that women doctors received was the same as men. They were kept out of medical societies, which was a very important place to present work and make connections. It was difficult to get teaching privileges at, um, you know, some of the major hospitals in Philadelphia. Things were slowly changing, but there was, you know, that definitely that opposition. And so, you know, the character of Lydia, she you know, in order to be in this environment, you know, and she is a person who's achieved what she has by her own hard work. She has her education. She is in this position as a professor. And so she has some certainty. You know, she has to she has to project that confidence and certainty. You that can't be emotional. Knows. You cannot be emotional. Right. I mean, it's That's just. What, and exactly. You, you have to just get through that, and, and you, you can't care too much about your patients or, or you know, you, or it doesn't balance out. You end up thinking about only that patient, and then you're in trouble. And I think that's the dynamic, and that's really the relationship that's at the core of the story, is this doctor-patient relationship between her and her young patient, Anna. And I think this is where Lydia really changes because, as you say, she feels like she needs to have some detachment. She needs to be a little bit aloof. She needs to be a little emotionally separated from this young woman. But she sees so much of herself in this young woman. 
And that's really how she changes over time through the course of the novel is that a little bit of this vulnerability comes in. She, What I like about her so much as a character is she's willing to examine herself. She's willing to examine like these attitudes that she has um, where she feels so certain this is the way it should be. And I think that's really where the nuance and strength of her character comes through now, and what you, makes her really likable. Yeah. Do you see yourself in Lydia? I mean, are you? is Lydia a lot like you? I think there are elements of, of me, for sure. I, I, I don't know how um, how writers can really keep out these little little parts of themselves, but I think there are certain uh, things about her. She can be, um, you know, a little bit shy, cerebral, reserved. That's definitely me. <laughs> definitely you don't seem this. very. You don't seem very shy. Just talking to you. <laughs> <laughs> you're very outgoing. I mean, you're very personable. Well, thank you. So, uh, but you know, you see, you do put parts of yourself into the character. I think. I think it's unavoidable. Um, and you know, as I said, I think she has been with me so long. I really, um, I, she is like an old friend. And so, I think it's certainly for writing the second book. I think. Well, what would Lydia do in this situation? And I feel like I do know. Um, but it is, it is interesting and surprising how the character changed a little bit. Uh, to, as I mentioned, you know, just to be a little more vulnerable and questioning of herself. And that's, that's really what I think makes her her greatest character and makes her a good doctor. Um, well, how, do we know how old she is, or are we not supposed to know? We're not supposed to know. No, okay. Yeah, I, it's a little ambiguous. I think I'm honestly still thinking about that a little bit. But, um, but she's definitely, you know, younger. She's still... You know, and sometimes in some of the scenes, like in the faculty meeting, she's definitely a junior member of the faculty. And so I think, you know, that ability to, like, sort of question herself and what she's doing is very much there. Now, is she the type of woman that, that sneaks around by herself at night in the dark and, you know, doing things that she knows she shouldn't be doing and yet she can't help herself? Is that the way she is? Well, certainly, absolutely. <laughs> a lot of it. She does that. A lot of that in the book, I, I would say. But you know, that she's very independent and she's very resourceful and she's resilient. You know, her background is she's she's come alone to to Philadelphia. That's where she was a medical student, and you know, she had to work her way through you know part of medical school, and so she's a very independent and resourceful person, and so. Um, you know, she's if if the policemen are saying you really shouldn't investigate that, and she thinks there's something there, she'll do it. Um, and so, you know, she's very much a fictional composite of of some of the real life women doctors that I read about. And I, you know, I I can't emphasize enough how much I was just so inspired by these real life stories. It, you know, you think of 18, 1875. That's ten years after the end of the Civil War. And you have a medical school. So the school was originally founded by the Quakers in 1850. So in 1875, you have, um, you know, some some of the women who who taught there, faculty members, and who were students there. Some of them are very well known to history. I one of my favorite examples is a woman named Dr. Anne Preston, and she became the first dean of an American you know, a woman dean of an American medical school when she became dean of this college in 1861. Um, she was a Quaker, an abolitionist. She grew up in a progressive family that really supported, you know, women getting an education. Um, she was a children's book author before she decided to study medicine at the age of 38. And so to me, that, that, that feels like a very modern person. You know, when I was in medical school, um, the idea of what they called the non-traditional student, like an undergraduate, you know, so the idea that, you know, maybe a 22-year-old undergraduate can be one type of medical student, but that people can bring their varied life experiences and that adds a lot of richness to a career in medicine. So, um, you know, an older student, someone who had a career doing something else, this was a this was something that was really gaining traction when I was a, in medical school, and I thought that was something very modern. And here I am reading about, um, you know, in 1875 this was happening. Mm. Another example would be, you know, Dr. Carolyn Anderson. She was a a graduate of the class of 1878, one of the first black women physicians in the U.S. Um, Imagine what she went through. Wow. 
And so it was just fascinating to learn about these women. Many had grown up in progressive families. Many had been involved in a lot of social movements like pro-temperance and suffrage and, um, you know, abolition. Um, some had careers as, like, school teachers. Some had grown up on their family farms, so were very independent and resourceful. Um, you know, there was a group of international students. This was fascinating to me. It's actually a very well-known photograph of three women, one um, from Japan, one from Syria, and one from India. It's like a studio portrait. You can find it, you know, widely on the Internet mm. um, of these three women in traditional dress, and they were three women who came from to study medicine in Philadelphia and then returned to their home countries uh, to practice medicine. Um, and so it's, it's just a, a very fascinating glimpse into this really interesting moment, I think, in women's history. And so, you know, it's a fictional story. I want people to be fascinated by this, you know, twisty mystery that, you know, draws on a lot of medical elements. But I really hope they'll be interested in this just inspiring women. So as we're reading your series, we're going to we're going to discover the medical breakthroughs in each. I mean, as time goes on, we're going to there's going to be stories and we're going to find out, you know, when things were discovered and what they had back then as opposed to now. And so we're going to learn a lot about the the history of the medical profession in general. Yeah, so at the time this book is set in 1875, and again, this was another reason I chose this time period. So 10 years after the Civil War, you know, the Civil War changed a lot in medicine. There were a lot of advances. Um, so, you know, think of things like the use of ambulances or surgical triage, surgical techniques, you know, whole new fields of surgery like plastic and reconstructive surgery, um, you know, hospital design. So the idea that you would separate patients, you know, into a malaria ward or a typhoid ward to sort of like reduce infection or how you would structure the wards to like increase ventilation to reduce respiratory illness. Um, you know, this is also around the time, it's just a few years before, that Joseph Lister um, published his first series of articles in The Lancet, the medical journal The Lancet, um, taking Louis Pasteur's germ theory and applying it to surgical wounds. And so the, the idea of antisepsis, you know, um, you know, in the hospital or the operating room was starting to take hold. So it's a very interesting moment, and I chose it because I thought, um, you know, you can really write about a lot about some of these breakthroughs or that are happening, um, but yet it would feel so far removed from what we would understand today. Obviously. I can't wait to see I the. Mean, I can't wait to see the cover of the second book. Of the, I mean, I I love this cover so much. I'm thinking, how in the world can they cop this cover? It's going to be hard to find another one that's just as creepy or or that's just as evocative as this one is. Yes, yes. <laughs> and imagine and imagine my shock as I'm reading your book and I and you mentioned the town of Havertown, which is where I grew up. Oh my goodness. That's what you know, this this was also a lot of fun because there was the whole the research was quite extensive. And you know, this is as important to me as I feel it is to the reader. As I said, I really have to envision the world before I can do anything with constructing the story. And so one huge part of it was obviously researching 19th century medicine, but the other part of it was Philadelphia. You know, what was the city like? What would it have felt like to walk down, you know, one of the cobblestone streets? What were the surrounding areas like? And so I spent a lot of time, a lot, and because I know, you know, to do this city justice, to do, you know, there are people who live there and love it, and, you know, you have to get that level of detail right. I really feel strongly about that. So um, I probably poured over just um, old, you know, photographs, certainly maps, drawings, and there was this wonderful, actually, online map, like resource that I used and must have looked at for hours, which was it takes a, you know, map of the modern-day city of Philadelphia, and then you can overlay historic maps on top of it to see how the city lines up. Um, and so what I would do is, like, look at this modern-day map of Philadelphia, and then I would take this 1872, it was like an ordinance map, so drawings of like what the city looked like. And, you know, so much of, uh, because I wanted to imagine, you know, when Lydia gets off the omnibus to walk to North College 
and 22nd Street, what's around the area? What do the streets look like? What kind of, was it an industrial neighborhood? You know, it's right near Girard College. And so what would that have looked like as she's like walking down the street? Um, you know, the opening scene of the book uh, takes care, takes place at the Fairmont Waterworks. And so I must have looked at maps and photographs from just, uh, just about every single angle you can imagine to think about what it would have been like, you know, to walk there. What would the park have looked like? What would the river have looked like? Would the, was Boathouse Row there? Yes, it was. You know, so all of these little details I, I really wanted to, to have to create that world. Well, yeah, that's difficult. I mean, you really, the only way you can really do that is to actually go there and, and look around and, and really get a feel of things. I mean, you, you literally yeah. have to. You can't really get the full picture from a book, I wouldn't think. You, you have to experience it, I would think. Yes, yes. No, and I, you know, I lived there, obviously, right. for, you know, five years, so that was great. But absolutely, I went back. And um, particularly the waterworks, you know, that area, um, you know, just below the art museum, it was really interesting to walk around and to, to see what it was like and, you know, to sort of think through what the scene would be like based on what I was seeing um, there in the, in the modern, you know, in the modern world. So Exactly. But to, to, to see my hometown in the book was like, I almost dropped the book. I was like... It's like she, how did she know? It's like you know, it, it felt so, so amazing. I mean, it, and you know, you don't. You just mentioned it in passing. It's not really part of the book, but but it was it definitely was surprising. You're just going to have to come here when you go on your book tour. People would love to. Eventually, you're going to have to. Yeah. Well, I'm actually doing a reading at Headhouse Books in Philadelphia. Oh, on really? South Second Street, and that's going to take place on Wednesday. Um, it's October 18th. So coming up, yeah. So I'm really looking forward to being back. Because we have some really cool independent bookstores in the area. I mean, they're all yeah. over, you know. And to, to miss out on that would be would they? I'm sure they would love to have you. You know, it's not yeah. easy to get yeah, authors I'm, nowadays. I'm, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, to going to Head House and. Um, you know, and again, it's it's really in, in maybe my favorite neighborhood in the city. So it's at South Second Street. So it'll in the old. Thing. Now, is this a so ticketed thing, or does, can anybody just show up? Oh no, it's not ticketed. So, okay. Yes, I'd I'd love to see see readers there, and um, yes, and it's nice to hear from someone who grew up and is familiar with Philadelphia and the area. That no, I haven't seen. Know, they they're supposed the to be sending resume. me right exactly. They're supposed to be sending me the finished copy. I've not yet seen the finished copy of the book. I'm sure you have by now, but I haven't. They they're uh, I haven't gotten it yet, so I don't. And I assume okay. that, that that what I have here is is basically the same as the finished <laughs> copy, although I'm sure. It, it looks a little bit different. Right, right. So, yeah, you have the advanced reader copy. Right. Right, so yeah. I'll be, I'll be, I always like to see the finished book. Sometimes they change things, and, you know, you're, or they'll, they'll change a little bit about it, and they, <laughs> they don't always tell me when they do that. So, it's, it's, so you, how far into book two are you right now? Well, I'm just, uh, you know, it's completely outlined, and I feel the research is, so I'm, I'm really just in the writing process now. Just in the writing. Uh, the interesting part about this book is is Lydia and Anna. Now, when something happens to Anna in the, in the beginning of the book, I, and I, I thought to myself, oh, man, this is really a heavy burden to put on Lydia already. <laughs> Her book, and she's got this heavy guilt thing that she's that she's that's going to have to deal with. And I thought, oh wow, how is she going to get over that? The, the feeling that she let her down, you know. And I, you're thinking about these things as you're reading the book. I don't, I don't know if any. I'm sure other people felt the same way. But do you think about that? Do you think about what you're doing to your main character? I. Uh, I do. Uh, I think that um, she, you know, she feels the responsibility, for sure. I, I, She's a busy woman. She can't handle everybody's life, either. Exactly. And I think that's where, you know, in the beginning, the emotional detachment comes in a little bit, because she she's almost a little 
irritated with herself, Lydia is. You know, I can't get so involved in my patient's lives. You know, and I think people around her get a little frustrated, and a sister, you know, is come seeking help. And so I think everyone gets a little frustrated with her, but that is her protection, is that, you know, as you mentioned before, if she gets involved in everyone's life, then it becomes this just emotionally wearying. But I, I would assume, as a doctor, you there are certain patients that you become... I don't want to say attached to, but you just, you have a feeling that they're going to become somebody that you are more open with than others. Of course, and I think that's what Lydia is surprised by here, is that she probably treats a lot of, uh, you know, young women patients who are like Anna, but she feels a real kinship to this young woman because she sees a bit of herself, the way Anna is trying to, you know, get an education, who, you know, she's in this very difficult job. She's a, you know, she's a chambermaid. She's at the whims of this wealthy employer, but she's still trying to, you know, do things, you know, go to these lectures or read these books or just really seek out opportunities for herself. Um, and, of course, you know, Lydia is a little bit naive about Anna's ability to do that because between them, even though there are similarities, there's this huge chasm of class, right? It's easy for Lydia to say, here, you know, take these books, read, educate yourself. But for Anna, you know, bound by poverty and circumstances, it, it's not as easy as that. And so, but absolutely, I think, you know, over time she feels this growing friendship with this young woman. She feels this connection to this young woman. Um, and it's just such a, you know, she knows things about Anna that other people don't. And that's really her, her strength and power as an investigator here is because, you know, part of it is like she's observing things that other people don't know. But part of it is because of the close nature of that doctor patient relationship, she knows things that the policeman may not know. Exactly. It's, I mean, as a, as a human being, there are certain people that affect you more than others. I mean, you, you can walk down the street and look at different people and, and you become intrigued by certain people. On other people, you're like, eh. <laughs> it, but it's just a matter of what you what you take to what what kind of person you're. I mean, I've met people that I thought, oh, I'm, I'm going to get to know this person. I'm going to when they come into the store where I work, I think I, I'm going to get to know them over time. And right. and then then there's the problem of how do I remember everybody's names too? <laughs> as as a as a doctor, and you you would have the same problem as a doctor. You remember the well, you you always have the chart in front of you, so I, I guess that always helps. But you know, <laughs> remembering things it's not easy to remember things. Uh, right. So, how do we know how tall Lydia is? Is she is she a tall woman? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I don't know that I've I've thought about that um, so much. But I mean, there's a description of her. I have a very um, a very clear sense of what she looks like. You know, with the dark hair, the dark eyes. I would say she probably is a tall woman. If I had to, if I had to say, but. You well, know, maybe you better say at some point. <laughs> it's, it's an interesting. It's an interesting question because I will tell you actually. Um, as I said, I was thinking about this character before I thought of anything else, and I have this little postcard of a painting that I saw in a museum in San Francisco years ago um, before I had the idea for the book. And I remember I was thinking about, you know, this woman doctor in the 1870s, and, and I saw this painting, and it's a painting of the American painter. Her name was Louise Jopling, and the, the um, painting was done by John Everett Millay, and it was at an exhibition about the aesthetic movement, William Morris. Anyways, I see this painting, buy a postcard in the gift shop, and I'm like, this is Lydia. <laughs> so it, it, a lot of the book, and so the dark eyes, the dark hair, kind of the attention, she, she is fashionable. You know, she has takes a lot of attention to and care with her dress and her home. You know, she has a, a wonderful aesthetic sense. And part of that is just creating this world for herself, you know, of beauty and comfort because she came from a background where she didn't necessarily have that. And a lot of her life is, you know, you know, just very difficult work and struggle. And so she has this really beautiful space and enjoys these beautiful things. So that, that was a part of Lydia's character. And, um, you know, a lot of a lot of things in the book, because of the historical period, were just inspired by photographs 
or, um, you know, old maps, old drawings, things like that. Uh, one of the things I love to look at at the Drexel Archives, and they have a wonderful online archive, so people who can't go visit in person can really look at a lot of the images and papers mm. and documents and diaries online. Uh, but one of the things uh, that I saw, I remember, and again, it's inspired in an entire scene in the book, the Halloween party, was this image of um, you know some of the women medical students dressed up for Halloween. And it was fantastic. People were in full costume. And it really struck me because, I, you know, as you say, this, this book is very dark and atmospheric, and Lydia is, is, you know, she's a serious character with a lot of responsibility. And so one of the things that I really loved when researching the book, and, you know, these women were the same way. They were doing something that was very exceptional, and this was serious, important work, pioneers, trailblazers. But at the same time, there are those moments when, you know, the joy of life comes through, like these young women living independently in Philadelphia, you know, following their dream. And so in moments like that, when I would see the photo from, you know, the Halloween party or, or you know, would, you know, another photo of them sitting around at the boarding house, like where they had shared rooms, sort of studying together and laughing. It's just wonderful to see those glimpses of life. And, you know, that's the life you hope to infuse into the historical world for the reader. Um, But We don't know. Obviously, we don't know everything about Lydia already. Are we going to find out different things about her as as the books go on? I can definitively say yes. I have some ideas for her, and I won't reveal them. <laughs> things, things that we don't already know. Things that we don't already know. Right. You have to have that. I mean, if you didn't have that, you'd be pretty boring. And I think that's how a character evolves over time, you know, especially in a series. Don't you? you do you have, of all the characters in this book, besides Lydia, let's leave Lydia aside, is there a character that really resonates with you that you enjoy writing more than others? say the character of Sergeant Davies mm-hmm. really is, I have great affection for that character. And that surprises me because when I started the book, I really envisioned him as this minor character, kind of the foil to the, you know, Inspector Volker, he's just the assistant. But I feel like as I wrote the book, so much of what happens and how the women doctors are viewed we see a lot through Sergeant Davies' eyes and through the lens of his background, which is working class. He does not have an education. He feels insecure about Lydia being brought onto the investigation. Not so much, um, I think it's for him, not so much that she's a woman because he's used to, you know, the idea of women doing hard work. It's the fact that she is an educated person. And so there's this friction and a little insecurity there. And what I love is how the relationship and the friendship between them develops over the course of the novel. And that was really wonderful to write. And he really surprises me as a character because... So he'll be back. Yes. And there's a lot of empathy and compassion in that character. And um, I just, uh, you know, the the same way I think, what would Lydia think? I would think, what would Sergeant Davies think? Because he has... You know, he's. I wonder if if you really. You you wrote a book and you didn't like a character. You decided after you wrote it you didn't like a certain character. Whether you would ditch the character or whether it would be just as much fun to write the character because you don't like the character as it is if you do like the character. Right. I mean, well, obviously, you know, there's some unlikable characters. Right. <laughs> there better be, yeah. And, <laughs> yes. And, you know, sometimes uh, I will say the villains are fun to write uh, because you can really let your imagination go in certain ways. But And they can know, be very yeah. honest, too, and really be, you know, really rip somebody apart, you know, with their words, you know. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's, I think, you know, in the writing of the book, again, I had ideas for other characters that hopefully will come back in later installments. Um, really great characters that I wrote out, but that just sort of bogged down the narrative a little bit. So I do have ideas for other characters, you know, in the medical school, just really unique um, types and who I hope to have, have there, um, you know, in future books. Are they... Um 
Are you, is there any plans to for you to get to the Bashrakan at all? At some point, have you ever been to a Bashrakan? Oh, I have not, um, but I know it was just recently held in San Diego. Is that right? Right, right yes. Right. It's usually every September, October, somewhere in there. It, dates change, but I, it's in it's in close to the fall. And I'm, you'd be I perfect to, to, have, to have a panel. And I, I would have to say, too, I just am really looking forward, you know, now that publication date is coming. You know, the best part of this will be connecting with readers. And, um, you know, the book is something I've worked on for many years. And, you know, this is obviously in many ways a solitary endeavor. Spend a lot of time. But you have to be able to take the good with the bad. I mean, if somebody writes you and says, oh, I hated your book. I don't like anything about it. You have to be able to say, well, that's just one person. You know, most people are probably going to enjoy it. And then just from reading it, I can say most people are probably going to enjoy it. But Of course. Yes, but they're always absolutely, and I think you have to. You're you're right. That's that's absolutely part of it. Um, but if you don't, if you don't, you have to take the good with the bad. If you're going to be a writer, if you're going to, you have to know, know what you're made of. You can't just say, "Oh, that's a bad review. I'm going to stop writing." You can't do that. I mean, it's just it's something you love and something you you want to pursue, and something you're obviously you're obviously talented. Or this this I wouldn't have read this book. I mean, I I would have given up on it had if it hadn't been interesting from beginning to end. Yes, I think it's, it's very true. You have to take the good with the bad. And again, this is where I think medical training <laughs> comes in. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You're used to, you know, this is, this is not, this is very par for the course. And you understand you can't please everybody. And um, you, you can't know, use their name. If you, right. Exactly. If you don't like the book, just don't read it. And, right. um, you know, we all have our opinions. Um, but I do think, you know, the, the opportunity for readers to enjoy it is, is just one of the best parts of writing it. So I, look I think Dennis Lehane said one time he didn't care whether people liked his book or hated his book, as long as they didn't have no reaction at all. <laughs> That's good advice. That is good advice. And I something to that. that. It was something like that. Somebody's going to correct me, but I, I, I don't remember <laughs> the exact quote. I remember him telling me that when I interviewed him years ago. But it was, you know, it's so interesting what people have to say. When you read a book of quotes, quotes are just so fascinating because mm-hmm. they tell they tell you so much about who's saying them. <laughs> Or or that little bit, you know, and sometimes they're meant to be funny, but sometimes they really, they really make you think. It's true. It is true. And that's what that's what's so great about about that. So how do you make the second book as good as the first? How do you how do you accomplish that? What is it going to be? Is it going to be more difficult to write the second book? Do you think now that you're writing it, is it more difficult? It is challenging. Uh, but you I like mean, challenge. You're I, up for the challenge, obviously. I am up for the challenge. I, you know, I think it's obviously now with the second book, I have a process. So, you know, with the first book, I wrote it over such a long period of time. I felt like it was a little bit more disjointed in the way I approached the writing. And, you know, as I described to you, I really like to do the research first. So, you know, all of that is in place. So, you know, the foundations are there, the the research, the outlining, and now the writing um, that's happening. And I think that, you know, there... Here's what I would say. It's just reconnecting with the joy of writing the book and with the characters and the setting and sort of reimmersing myself, you know, in that world. And as, when I can connect to that feeling and just, you know, obviously that has to go with the hard work of sitting down every day and writing it, um, but when I can reconnect really with the joy of writing and, and the reason I started and, you know, just being excited and energized by the storyline and the setting and, you know, just the really fascinating little details that come up in the course of research, I think that really helps me. Um, um, you know, keep going. And I mean, I'm, I would imagine there's always that pressure. You know, you've written the first book and now you have to make the second one. You know, readers and, and people who, who enjoy the book expect, um, you know, something very good. And of course, you want to produce that. But I think, you know, as you say, when you're writing for the reason 
you love it, this is something you want to do, regardless of what people think, then I think you're back in, in the groove of just the joy of doing the work. So, I mean, you've got a major publisher, Simon & Schuster. I don't know if I mentioned them yet or not, but they're the publishing your That's a major publisher. I mean, what you've done is a major accomplishment. And I, 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 feel, I, I wonder what, what, when you're, I don't know who, I don't know who you turned it into, but whoever you turned it into, what their first reaction to the book was. Incredibly fortunate to, you know, work with a wonderful editor and the amazing team at Simon and Schuster. It, it's just been a very supportive and collaborative process, you know, from the initial revision and editing all the way through. And so, yes, I feel very fortunate uh, to to work with them. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been great. So they were excited when they first got the manuscript. I would assume. You know, I think my editor really uh, loved the story, and... I mean, I'm not talking about the fact it wasn't totally done yet when you first handed it in. There's things to work out. There's things to... But, I mean, the the general idea of the book, the general... They they know what that it's going to work, and that it, it, it may need yeah. a little bit yeah. of work, but it's going to work, is what I'm saying. Yes. I mean, that was interesting for me, going through this process the very first, you know, as as a total novice here, was, you know, there are various points when you're writing the book, you think, I'm done. This is done. <laughs> you realize, right. no, no, you're not done. Um, and so when the book was acquired by my editor, you know, it underwent another huge, you know, editing and revision and a lot of thinking about the structure and the narrative and the characters and how they were fitting into the story. And honestly, I really enjoy this process. I really do not look at it as something, you know, like a confrontational, like, oh, we're, you know, we're taking this out or I feel so strongly this needs to stay in. I never felt that at any moment. Um, I really look at this and kind of a, approach this with a spirit of collaboration. I mean, I'm relying on their expertise to, to make this book so much better. And, um, you know, with that attitude, it really, um, I think it worked very well. You know, the whole kind of really intense round of revision and editing um, that we went through. Right. Now, this book's what, 280, about 288 pages. I was, uh, I don't know about you, but I always look at a book to see how long a book is. <laughs> Does that, does that make me seem weird? I don't know. But it, I always wonder, you know, sometimes when you, it's like a movie, you watch a 90-minute movie, you think, well, they, you can't put much into a 90-minute movie. You think how, and then you think they must have been edited down. But So your books are probably going to be close to 300 pages every time. Uh-huh. I mean. I, yes, I mean, I think I think of it more maybe word count, like 80, 80 to 90,000 words right. in that range as the finished product. And how much does humor come into your books, or will it come into your books? Will there be a lot of humor, or does this have to be totally serious all the time? No, I, I, I think that is always an important element. I do. I mean, I think that infuses life into, there's a little bit of humor in this, um, but, you know, again, I think as Lydia's character evolves, we'll see some more, more things about well, her. Well, she's a very serious and, person. Well, I think she has to be. This is a very... Well, we, maybe serious. we'll see the softer side of her in the upcoming books, too. I think that's where you see a character's evolution, honestly. There's so much more to learn about her, I feel. Mm-hmm. Now, is, does that mean you, too? You're going to learn things about her, too? I feel I do. I feel I learned things about her that were surprising in the course of writing this novel. So I think that it's such a, it's really such a lengthy process and things shift so much that, you know, I would always read these articles and the, you know, writers would talk about how the, their character did something that surprised them or the book ended in a way they didn't expect. And I thought, always thought, how could that be? You know, you're the writer, you're in control, you've plotted everything out. And now I understand. I think, you know, in the course of writing it, there are just so many things that come up that shift your perspective. Um, and so that certainly happened with the character of Lydia. And I think it made her a, a better, more nuanced character. What's it going to be like to walk into a bookstore and see your book sitting there in a bookstore? What's that going to be like for you? That is going to be thrilling. 
In fact, I was just talking with my husband about that, that we are definitely going to go walk just to our local bookstore where we have been, you know, enjoyed book buying for years and are always there with our kids and, you know, just we're avid book buyers and readers and to see the book, you know, sitting there for sale. It'll be wonderful. Who is the first author that you read where you said, oh, my, I am really into mysteries now. I've really got to read more. Was there, was there one author that really got you started on that? I have read mysteries for so long that I can actually remember, like the way I remember people and places in my life. Um, I can remember uh, different, you know, time periods where I was reading certain authors. I would say absolutely. I remember the moment in seventh grade, middle school library, found the um, Agatha Christie paperbacks. All right well-thumbed Agatha Christie paperbacks I read, and then there were none. That's the first mystery I ever read. Completely captivated. And But I would say um, when I was in college and then in medical school, I started reading a lot of P.D. James, Ruth oh, wow. Rendell, and then Ruth Rendell writing as Barbara Vine, you know, the novel she wrote as oh, Barbara yeah. Vine. Mm -hmm. And I just utterly captivated just, you know, there's something, I, I honestly think that to just describe them as mystery novels is, is not doing full justice to, you know, kind of the depth of characterization and, you know, the psychological aspects of so many of those books. So those two are just two of my favorites. I also really enjoy Henning Mankell. That was maybe 10 years ago. Um, there's some dark stuff for you, really yeah, dark. The Wallander mysteries are, um, they're just wonderful. And I, I am also, besides historical mysteries and police procedurals, and I really am drawn to novels where the landscape or the setting is so evocative. It's almost like a character itself. And I think he does that brilliantly. The Kurt Wallander mysteries, you know, the stark beauty of the, that landscape, you know, just really mirrors the, or the cold of The cold of Canada with Louise Penny, who does it so beautifully. Yes. I love those novels, the gamache. Um, those, those are wonderful as well. You feel and like so you're the, part of the town when you're reading this. You feel like exactly. you're... And when they're sitting around the fire, you, you can feel the fire. I mean, you really, she does it so well that you actually feel everything that they're feeling in the books. And the way they, the way they snipe at each other and they kid around with each other, it's, so, it's such an important part of the book. And, Absolutely. But then you have to figure, well, if I start doing humor, I have to have humor in every book. So then you have to be humorous. You almost have to be a comedian <laughs> to write a book. Because you can't stop once you start. It's got to. It's got to follow. So you got to follow through with it. So I think with the with the historic setting that I'm working with, um, a lot of it is language. You know what conversation and language. I'd really think about that. You don't want it to sound stilted or right. forced, mm -hmm. and then to infuse humor humor into that. I mean, there is. There is a lot to writing good conversation, I think, in a modern-day novel and certainly in a historical one. So, and, you know, using terminology that would have been used in the United States, not English, you know, when you think about 1870s. And uh, so there are a lot of elements to consider, I think. I think I think a novel works better without a cell phone nowadays. I, I don't know. Sometimes the cell phones get on my, get on my nerves, not only in books but in real life. <laughs> <laughs> And you're dealing with, you know, people are on their phones all the time and they're ignoring things that are going on around them. You, you can't be personable with them. You can't say hello to them. They don't even hear you anymore. It's really, it's really a, a different world now. It is. It is. Agreed. And, you know, and while cell phones are great at times, there are times when you just want to say, you know, it's time to put it down. I mean, I don't know how you feel with that. I've always felt that way about that, but. I love. I also love being able to reach out to people. I mean, you've got right. you've got groups online talking about books, and and they're all excited about books. I mean, that's where it's at to to find this group really of people. Mm -hmm. You connect mm -hmm. with these people, and and nobody cares what anybody else is like. It's all about the books. It's all about the, sharing the enjoyment with other people, even if you don't agree with people. It's still fun. But nobody, you know, nobody says nasty things to each other. It's it's all fun. That's what the internet should be about: being yeah, being respectful community. and loving of other people and accepting of other people, because we're all different. 
But, Absolutely. But, oh boy, it's been an hour already. It's hard to believe. It's been so enjoyable to talk to you. Thank you. I, I just never, I never know what an author's going to be like. And, and, but you've been more than enough. And we didn't even talk about you growing up in India, Kolkata, India, what that was like. Yeah. I never even got you know, to mention I that. I was, I was born there, actually, and um, but my parents had been living here in the U.S. in San Francisco. Oh, okay. So I only I was born there because my mom wanted to to be with her family, and so I was born there and came um, back. You know, had lived here since I was two months old. So, but I do have that uh, connection to Kolkata and Bengal. <laughs> That's why I don't and, hear you know, an an Indian accent in your voice. And we, you know, we would go back every year to visit family. So. Do you still yeah. do that? Yes, I, I haven't been back for a few years, uh, just you know, due to the pandemic and other things. But um, it, it is nice to go back and, and see family. Do you do your? You have three kids, you said, right? Yes. How did, did they? Did they leave you alone enough that you can write? Is there times where you just say, "Mom needs to be alone to write," or do they just know that it's time? You know, my family has been wonderful, I will say. So my husband, he's also a physician, and, you know, he really understood from the beginning how important, you know, the writing was. And the three kids, this has been a part of their life for years. And so the, you know, half the kitchen table is, like, covered with books and papers. And, you know, with their usual aplomb, they sort of, you know, take this as, as part of their normal life and, you know, really cheered me on, even while not fully understanding all that's happening. So I feel very fortunate in that way. Oh, that's really nice. That's nice to hear. Yeah. Because you yeah. know how kids can be nowadays. And so they got to be, you know, they have, to, they have to learn patience, just like we had to learn patience. Well, the book, again, exactly. is called Murdered by Degrees, Me Too. Mukherjee. Oh, I almost said it wrong. I knew I was going to blow it at some point. And it's out October 17th. You'll be able to get it in all your bookstores. And is there going to be an audio version of it? Yes, there is. So wow. there, uh, yes. Yeah, so there is an audio version and obviously the print version. So I really hope you know your your listeners enjoy it. And thank you so much for having me. Oh, thanks. It's been my joy. It's this has been great fun, and this has been David's Book Talk. And we'll talk to you next time. You have just enjoyed the podcast of David's Book Talk, brought to you by your host, book lover David English. Please visit us at davidbooktalk.com, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to our podcast. We want to hear from you, and we don't want you to miss our upcoming shows with top authors like Mary Higgins Clark, Patricia Cornwell, Lisa Scottolini, Jackie Collins, Nelson DeMille, Michael Connolly, Sue Grafton, Steve Martini, Dale Brown, David Baldacci. 